Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Ian Head, and I'm here with my fellow legal worker, Leah Todd, who's subbing in for Leah Hussein. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be here. I'll be filling in on the next couple of episodes. So I've been on vacation the last week in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, my first mm-hmm. time in Europe, and I've missed out on a few CCR things. I heard there was a costume party. This is true. I heard you might have entered the costume party. This is true, though let me stop you and tell you I did not win. What were you entered as? I was entered as Notorious RBG's Immortality-Inducing Workout. Wow, okay, you gotta explain that I gotta explain that. So, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we all know her, Notorious RBG, as she's known, sometimes in meme form. So some folks might have seen the recent documentary that came out about her, and through that, the world learned that she has a very serious workout that she engages in very regularly. Now it's apparently like a book. Her trainer put out a book. So there's now this very popular workout inspired by our 80-something-year-old Supreme Court justice. She does it wearing a shirt that says Super Diva, which is just real cute. But anyway, she's super powerful in a way that we didn't know. <laughs> and so my costume was me with a, one of those little doily things. There's a name for it. I don't remember the name. And then some little weights. doing the super diva thing. If you follow CCR's Instagram account, CCR Justice, you could have seen one of our Instagram stories with me doing some working out. Did not win the costume, Luigi did. Costume contest, Luigi Luigi being Luigi from Super Mario Brothers? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, throwback. Yeah, no, there were some throwbacks. We had uh, Kylo Ren, we had a Kylo Ren also. All right. So yeah, I was the only legal themed thing. I missed out on these exciting moments. You know, that's too bad you were in Stockholm. (laughs) Okay, well, it sounds like I missed out on some really creative and fun things uh, this last week at Center for Constitutional Rights. Let's get on to our interview. Who are we talking with on this episode of Activist Files? Today we're bringing you an interview between Subu Zukode, founding and elected president of the Shack Dwellers Movement in South Africa, and Nahal Zamani, advocacy program manager here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Spoo talks about how the Shack Dwellers movement is one of the largest to emerge in post-apartheid South Africa, and why the fight for land rights is so essential and very interconnected with so many other struggles, including ones here in the U.S. Let's listen. Welcome to Act as Files, presented by the Center for Constitutional Rights. My name is Nahal Zamani, and I'm an advocacy program manager here. Today I'm here with Sibu Zakode, uh, one of the leaders of the Shack Dwellers movement in South Africa. Thank you, Sabu, for joining us. We'd love to talk to you here today about what's going on in South Africa, the movement that you're a part of, and your take on what's at stake today. Thank you, Nahal. Thank you to the Center for Constitutional Rights, and thank you to the listeners for this wonderful opportunity. As you have said, my name again is Sabu Zigode. I am the founding and the elected president of the Shack Dwellers Movement, of South Africa called Abakhali Basem Jondolo, meaning the residents of the Sheikhs. The Abakhali Basem Jondolo was founded in 2005 to fight for, protect, promote, and advance the interest and the dignity of the Sheikh dwellers and the impoverished in South Africa. One will recall that uh, Abakhali was one of the biggest social movements to have emerged in the post-apartheid South Africa. Um, so if you are living in slums in South Africa, just like anywhere in the world, you are taken for granted. You are taken as a person that 
do not count in our society. Many slum dwellers, not only in South Africa, are facing a lot of vicious evictions, which are often are unlawful, but also they are violent uh, by nature. This is what the slum dwellers are facing in South Africa. So the organization is mainly um, dealing with the question of housing, the land, but also dignity. So it's housing, land and dignity. This is what we're focusing on. I mean, there's more than 12 million people in South Africa that are living in shacks. We have more than 2,300 informal settlements in the country. So our global economy continues to force many people, as we see here in the United States as well, that poor folks are being pushed out of the city for a number of reasons. But the main one is the global economic system that we are all faced with. Tell me why housing is such a huge issue and access to housing and living with dignity and availability of stable, secure, safe housing. Why is this such a key issue in South Africa today? Well, um, listeners will recall that South Africa has just had our independence, freedom, in 1994. So we're almost 24 years in our freedom. We have this history not only of colonial, but of the land dispossession through the apartheid system. So land was stolen from many African pe- black African people in South Africa. So today the question of land is a deep question in many people's hearts in South Africa. Uh, what is worrying is that um, after our democratic black-led government, the question of land remains a huge issue. When I left home, there's still a huge debate that has been brought forward not only by parliamentary but also number of sectors in our society, a call for an expropriation of land without compensation, meaning black Africans who want their land back, which is currently owned by few white elites. So it's a huge debate, and there's a possibility of Section 25 of our Constitution, which is talking to that, uh, that it might change to allow the expropriation of land without compensation. But we know, as black impoverished folks in South Africa, that expropriation of land without compensation, meaning taking off land without paying for it, is basically not going to benefit poor folks, because what it means is taking land from the white minority elites, but giving it to black elites. It will not benefit men and women who are blenders. So talk a little bit more about why land is such both a economic but also racial issue in South Africa. Well, I think many South Africans believe uh, that if you have land, you have everything. In fact, if you have land, you have dignity. If you have land, you have food. If you have land, you have jobs. We have a, a high rate of an unemployment in South Africa. There's a huge inequality, poverty, and unemployment. Therefore, land is an answer to all of this, given that a lot of people are unemployed. So not only that we land is needed just for agricultural purposes, but we've come up with the principle that the social value of land should come before its commercial value. So because there are a lot of landless people, a lot of homeless people, which is why land is important for us. Not only for that, but for our food sovereignty and our food security system. Since, I mean, there are no jobs in our urban centers, I mean, people would actually rely on land, I mean, for grazing those who have cattle as a means of survival. I mean, 
these days it's hard to find jobs so people are really rethinking about the olden ways in which our ancestors used to live without the modern jobs without modern technology and so on but because they had land they had everything that is why land is such a an important but it's such a, a contested terrain not just urban land but also rural land because uh, in most cases in South Africa, white minority commercial farmers, uh, you know, the land is still in their hands. And why is that? I mean, you mentioned some of the ideas around changing laws so that land would be redistributed. How did that fail? Why did that not happen? Or why did it shake out the way that it did? Well, the question of land is linked to many, you know, important, you know, elements. The question of land talks to our global economy. The investors, um, since they have heard about this debate, about the possibility of expropriation of land, it is somehow scaring investors. But again, it doesn't really benefit ordinary people and local communities. So I guess the question of land speaks to a lot of ties, you know, within the government, with other institutions. It has really provoked, you know, a lot of minds who have vested interests in the economy of South Africa. But we are hoping that as the people of South Africa, the government, but also the marginalized community, if we will all have a voice, we approach the land to an ex- in such a way that it benefits uh, not only the elites, but people who are landless, people who are homeless, people who are unemployed. So, which is why for us, we say the social value of land should come before its commercial value. It doesn't mean that the profit is not important, but it shouldn't really be be pushing poor folks who do not even have housing for that matter. So for us to actually access housing, land becomes a key, and we don't see land as something to be sold and, you know, as a commodity. That's what we differ from, you know, a lot of people within the debate seeing land as a commodity, and many people would not afford the sale of land. So tell us a little bit about some of the strategies and the tactics of the Chak Dellers movement, and what have been some of the successes that you guys have had? Oh, yes. Abatlani Basam Jondo have used a number of strategies and tactics to organize the unorganized, which has really threatened the authorities. Since we are dealing with people who are landless and homeless, direct action resistance, which is in Kani, has always been a forefront of our organization. Occupation of vacant land has been one strategy to correct the imbalances of the past. You know, I've talked about land having been dispossessed, you know, from particularly black majority South Africans. So now is a way to balance that. Abatlali has taken a view that it's not only parliament, it's not only papers that will correct the question of land, but the landless themselves should occupy vacant and used land. We are careful not to tramp into the rights of others. As we would know, a lot of land in South Africa is owned by people who do not even live in South Africa for that matter. And therefore, it's one strategy that we use to make sure that everyone at least has a piece of land to build themselves their own house. So occupation of land, which has always been peaceful, is used uh, by Abahlali. So we've kept a number of families, I mean thousands of families, that we've managed to keep them in their homes. Of course, we've been facing a number of evictions, you know, from the state, from city governments who would deem this as an illegal act. But we know that the occupation of land 
is not a criminal act, it is a political act in a way that you need to balance, you need to correct the imbalances of the past. But other um, strategies that we use to organize, and our, you know, Abashali has grown, we have more than 50,000 membership across the country. So we've used culture to organize because that's where we sort of gain our strength as poor communities who have become hopeless. But we've managed at the same time to sort of build the kind of a society that we want to see as a movement, a society where equality, justice, respect and dignity becomes the order of the day. That's the kind of a society we want to build. But of course, you cannot talk about dignity without land, without housing, without you know being respected. So slowly we've been managed to change the mindset of the poor folks who often have the inferiority complex. You know, people are hopeless, people have no confidence unto themselves. So we've tried to do that. So we have a number of programs. We do a lot of advocacy work. We do a lot of civil and political education around the slum dwellers, but also making sure that we connect water to ourselves. You know, for those folks who do not understand what life is like in the informal settlements, there's hardly any water and sanitation. There's hardly any road access. There's hardly any refuse collections. So there's hardly any electricity. As a result, people would use candles to light up and stoves to cook. These paraffin stoves, which are often explosive. And if one shack fire is late, then it means the entire settlement is on fire. So this is what we have to live with. So we need to improvise. For some reason, the state is not always responsive, you know, to all these needs. And as the Sheikh Dollars movement, we have a responsibility to look after our families, to look at our kids, to make sure that everyone is safe, to make sure that our life is also respected. So we connect water ourselves. We connect to electricity ourselves. There's a self-connection to electricity and water as a way of speeding up the services that a government should be providing. So this is what we are confronted with in the post-apartheid South Africa. South Africa is a place of destination for many African immigrants. You know, they will go to South Africa as a place of destination. But obviously, uh, there are a lot of challenges around that when neighboring communities are facing violence in South Africa, such as your xenophobia attack. So this is what our movement had to deal with to make sure that there are no human borders. And we welcome, we protect brothers and sisters from, you know, neighboring countries. So this is what we have to do in our communities. So we make sure that we build a society that is open to everyone and we build bridges between and within communities as a way of building the kind of society that does not put human borders. So I was struck a little bit about how you talked about South Africa as its destination. Um, And many know South Africa as a place that has many resources. And despite all this, access to land, access to water, access to clean housing, this is not guaranteed for many people for a number of political reasons. These two realities, how they juxtapose each other, how do they interact? Yeah, well, what is very disappointing in South Africa right now is the level of violence, uh, the state violence. The police, our cities are militarizing, um, forming their own armed forces um, that are aimed at crushing poor folks that are landless and homeless in our cities. I mean, that's very worrying. Um, We have had an incident where more than 10, you know, of our leaders and activists have been assassinated. 
the latest being of the that happened on the 22nd of May this year of our chairperson in one of our branches in Maron Hill and there isn't been any arrest up until today. So we've lost number of Congress and the source of violence come either from the politicians who would hire hitmen. There's a new language in South Africa. I've seen the New York Times yesterday has a big story on the assassination of um, uh, South African leaders, politicians, and, and, and so on. So it's either the politicians would hire hitmen to carry this assassination, or it would be the police, the South African police services themselves, or these, uh, the so-called anti-land invasion unit, which is these militarized city forces that the cities forced to create in order to, to make sure that city bylaws are adhered to. But I mean, these armed forces are specifically designed to crack down, you know, Abashali members and those folks who are landless because a lot of folks would then occupy land. So then these forces are, are, are there to, you know, deal with them. So um, it's shocking that we have had to bury number of comrades and we continue. But we're also receiving death threats, you know, as we speak, a couple of leaders of Abashali are, are in hiding and the state is not willing to do anything to protect activists that are facing these brutal murder, but also threats that we are facing. I mean, we've written letters to the president of the country, to the minister of police. They are not forthcoming. Why? Because impoverished communities count for nothing. We are seen as a classless society. So this is concerning. On the one hand, Amatali are growing the spirit of resistance because that's what you built. What we see is not just the question of budget constraints that South Africa, in terms of its economy, cannot afford its people. And I mean, we see here in New York, we see a number of cities in the United States in the place of so plenty and gentrification continue to push poor folks outside the cities. In South Africa, it's not the question of resources, but I think it's a question of really, it's not a question of budget constraint, but it's a question of political will, whether or not our government are really willing to provide fundamental services that are not only guaranteed by our constitution, by, but also embroidered by within the international laws you know, and standards. You don't see that. So as a form of punishment, Abakhali have been terrorized by our own government, in our own cities, in our own province, in our own country. So our crime has been to organize the unorganized, the poor folks, majority of them black. Our crime has been to organize outside the state control. Our crime has been to expose high-ranking corrupt politicians because the level of corruption within the government is so high at the same time. You know, as an organized movement, it becomes our task as well to hold elected representative accountable, and this is what we do. Tell us a little bit about the new president in South Africa and the current role of the ANC and how the government is acting with regards to these threats happening to your movement. Many people would know that the ANC is now divided. There's been a faction of the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and those who remain loyal to the former president, Jacob Zuma. We had a hope in this current presidency because we know the previous president would actually hide corruption and also somehow he contributed to the violence that has 
become to characterize not only our cities but the entire nation. We're hoping that President Cyril Ramaphosa would somehow do something to root corruption in government, but in other, I guess, sectors of our society as well. But also to take seriously the political violence and assassination, particularly that happens in Guazulu-Natal. Guazulu-Natal is one of the provinces in South Africa that is well known for the 80s and 90s political violence, and it continues those patterns. Politicians get away with the killing. I mean, we've read from the New York Times yesterday that more than 90 ANC councillors, just within the ANC, if they are able to kill themselves at such a high scale, how much more for us who are outside the ANC? And of course, I mean, the New York Times article does not go in as far as talking about the holistic killing. It was just focusing on the killing within the ANC. So a lot of killing is taking place, you know, outside the ANC, organizing grassroots organization, not just Abahlali uh, in the Eastern Cape. We remember Bazuga Hadebe um, within the Amadiba Crisis Committee having been killed because of the mining that was taking place in the community, you know, without the approval of the community. So there isn't really nothing that the ANC is doing about this or the government. Of course, there are a number of commissions that have been set up. One of them has been the Morana Commission, which was really set up to into looking at the political killing in Guazulu-Natal. They've just submitted their report and made some recommendation. We don't know whether the state is prepared to implement that or not. But President Sri Ramaphosa has also instituted what he calls it as the Interministerial Committee to look at the political killing. But all these commissions, none of them recognize Abahlali as part of the community that needs protection. Why so is that? Poor communities are taken as people who do not count in our society. Our lives count for nothing. We are treated as people who are beneath the law. That is why all these commissions that are really looking into the killing, none of them would actually take seriously the killing among Zabatlali. That is why we have written a specific letter to the head of state to say, can you establish a commission of inquiry that would look into the killing of Abatlali leaders and activists and provide protection for the current waves of threat that we continue to face? So South Africa can no longer be deemed to be a democratic country in that sense when it uses violence to suppress emerging and democratic voices. Absolutely. This doesn't seem like a glaring omission that was made by mistake. This seems like a purposeful thing that was done. Absolutely. And it's striking because you guys are the strongest movement in South Africa. One of the strongest social movements, we could say, that's been organized in the world. And yet, when your leaders are being assassinated, targeted, threatened, all of which are normal realities for folks that are organizing under very serious and dire circumstances, but especially striking right now. And yet, the reality of this is trying to be omitted as if it's less important. And it's very, it's a very purposeful omission, right? It's the fear of how strong your movement is in a way. Yes, I mean, we want to send a very strong message that if our democracy would have to be protected, then states everywhere in the world need to take seriously that the only way to keep the democratic space, of course, is to allow all these progressive democratic formations. That's only when we can claim to have a democratic state that allows all these grassroots, whether communities or organized democratic forces. That's the only hope we have. 
if our states are prepared to shut these and crack down these democratic spaces, and if the state are prepared to allow gangsters and mafias to hijack our cities, because some cities, like in South Africa and elsewhere in the world, have hijacked by mafias and gangsters, and you think you have leadership in the city, and the city is run by gangsters. This is what we are seeing. That is why the cities are unable to protect its citizens, because nobody is aware that who actually run the city is no longer a leader that was elected democratically with passion about their nation, about the society. You talked a lot about organizing amongst unorganized communities. Tell me more about how you guys were able to do this, a little bit about how you were able to build on popular education and organizing and political strategies. What were some of the guiding posts that you used or that inspired you along the way? Yes, uh, organizing is not easy. I mean, it's easy to talk about organizing. But in Abatlali, we call, I mean, we have what we call the art of organizing. And we see organizing as a school. And we say struggle is a school. So we have come up and developed our own politics. It's called the living politics. It is the politics that ordinary men and women can understand at home. It's a politic that speaks to the need of folks in the shacks, in slums, in the flats, and so on, wherever they find themselves. It's a politics that speaks to the fact that they do not have water, they do not have electricity. They might have been pushed out of their cities and homes. So it's a politics that says, I do not need water, I do not need electricity. But my life needs water, needs electricity, and I'm forced, therefore, to do something. It's that kind of the politics. So when we organize, obviously, we don't begin by big jargons what that would have to do with ordinary men and women who's homeless, who's in the streets. So we make sure that we master the language of the unorganized, the folks that we are organizing. We understand their culture, but most importantly, we understand I mean, the constituency that we want to organize so that we speak their language, but also we use culture, arts, as a way to keep them within the struggle. And of course, we'll focus much on popular education. Um, in Abahlali, the requirement for us to actually claim to be working in community A or B, we would have to have a minimum of 50 members. Strong family values are very important. Building communities and neighborhood is very important because you cannot claim to be building a nation when you don't have neighborhood. And communities are built the fact that you are living together doesn't automatically make you community. Communities are built. We must build communities that talk to each other, that can greet each other. If we are serious about the kind of society that we envisioned, where there's peace and this unity. So, of course, um, because we organize in different settlements, meaning in different branches or different communities, we also believe in a democracy from below. It is the communities from those particular settlements that will elect its leaders, trusted by them. Our role as leaders is to facilitate and to make sure that democracy is real and is, is taking place. Once the branch is launched and once the committee is elected, they take oath. That's how serious it is. Once the committee is elected, we will do what we call as the induction workshop. Because Sabatlan is unique, so we make sure that we build leaders again. Uh, leaders are built, they may be born, but we believe that we have the responsibility to build uh, leaders. These tactics seem really striking in the similarities with other social movements 
who have also been extremely targeted and repressed by government forces, whether it's in the U.S. context, uh, particularly around organizing around race, I would say, in our history, or in other countries. So tell me a little bit about how you've been able to connect with and learn and build with other movements happening across the world. And have you found that some of their organizing tactics have echoed or are similar to some of these tactics that you have described and how you've been able to organize? Oh, yes. I think it's important for any progressive movement to actually identify its allies. Global connections are very important, which is why we're here. We have good progressive folks here who are doing similar work. I have come to learn also from the art of organizing this side, but also the folks enjoy our style of organizing. Uh, these struggles are important, and they are mostly similar everywhere. I mean, the context could be different, but impoverished folks are forced out by the very same global economic system. So it requires, therefore, all our struggles to actually unite, and that's the only way we can build the, the power of the impoverished from below. So we are learning from me and from other comrades within the region in Africa, Brazil, Latin America, and um, here as well. So we are hoping that one day we can build a global movement, and we are clear who, what are we against, and uh, so there's hope that we will continue learning and struggling together. I think you guys have filled the global movement. I think you have. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your work with uh, the movement in Brazil, because that's a movement that some of our supporters may know a little bit about. How have you been able to build with them, express solidarity with them? Well, this movement in South Africa, Abathali has worked closely with the MST in Brazil, in a number of fronts, but Part of the main one is obviously popular education. MST has the international political school that they run all the time. And uh, we've been very happy over the past few years having sent Abatlali folks to the MST political school. But also folks from here um, in the U.S. have also been part of that progressive force. Um, we have learned so much from MST. And, of course, they've also sent some of its delegates, you know, in Abatlal. But similar schools are also opening up in the region. I mean, we have one in Balabella in South Africa. There's a number of spaces that are opening for that purpose. And I was particularly happy, I mean, just a week, two weeks ago here, there's been this launch of the People's Forum here in New York, which is an amazing space that I will encourage folks here to, you know, pop in and see what the future entails because we are likely to build greater minds in these spaces. So it's part of a broader movement to actually end poverty and build global movement against uh, oppression. And there have been a lot of exchanges between the Center for Constitutional Rights and the Shakhtar's movement in South Africa. From staff from our organization going out to South Africa we even had an exchange last November, one year after President Trump was elected, where we brought together leading activists and advocates in the United States to learn from advocates and activists in South Africa and discuss the parallels and think about how you can organize spaces for civic participation, for social movement building, despite government repression and thinking about a number of the common tactics that were being used, the ways that governments were targeting individuals and activists on the basis of their identity, of their activism. 
I'm struck by the number of exchanges that have been happening between the Center for Constitutional Rights and the Shack Dwellers Movement in South Africa. There's been staff that's gone out to South Africa, and even last November, there was an exchange where advocates and activists from South Africa came together with some of the leading activists based in the U.S. to discuss and strategize in the face of a Trump presidency what organizing, what movement support, and what social lowering should look like. Talk a little bit about where you're seeing the parallels and what advice you have for those of us that are politically enlightened, enraged, impassioned, and looking for ways to engage. What are the ways that those of us based in the U.S. can express solidarity with people in South Africa, particularly given how you are being targeted and threatened at this time? Yes, it's been quite interesting to see these learnings between the Center for Constitutional Rights here with the Shack Dwellers Movement in South Africa, Abathali, but also our legal wing, also the Social Economic Rights Institute of South Africa, and, you know, folks who are really dedicated to be working amongst the impoverished and be providing legal support and so on within the grassroots movement. That's quite extraordinary because often institutions of this nature, they want to work for the folks and not with. So my advice, hence, is to um, say to the Center for Constitutional Rights and other progressive forces of their nature uh, with their professional support to grassroots movements and the communities that they work with is to say you should always work with communities and not for the communities. In other words, you do with and not for because you need to empower communities at the same time in the name of support and solidarity. So this has worked very well in the past, you know, with all the exchange with advocates, for instance. It has been very amazing how grassroots leaders from social movement will meet their advocates, their attorneys, and, you know, to discuss social law, to discuss challenges that uh, social movement faces vis-a-vis what legal professions, you know, would face in dealing with some of the issues that are facing communities. So this kind of working together, for me, is very key. It needs to be supported, it needs to be encouraged, and we are really grateful, you know, for that opportunity. And we so wish that that opportunity can be be supported, you know, by all means necessary, so that we sort of build, you know, the bridge between professional lawyers in particular with the communities that they are meant to serve. So I guess that would enlighten communities. Uh, we would be very clear about the role of lawyers and experts within the struggling communities, because there's always a role for expert within organization. But I must warn that in doing so, you should not take over the voice of the very same organization that you want to support, because often in the name of support and solidarity, you tend to hijack the voice. You are seen speaking for now, you're not speaking with, you don't give that opportunity you know, to people to speak for themselves. I think that's the language we should be encouraging that emerging struggling communities, social movements should be supported and be encouraged to speak for themselves. And your role is to support that and provide expert and of course solidarity. So the kind of solidarity, of course, we would appeal to folks and everyone is that violence should not be tolerated in any way. So we would ask folks to write to the South African um, High Commissioner here 
and to raise concern about the ongoing violence against shack dwellers in South Africa and other struggling communities who are really genuinely wanting the fair deal that is guaranteed by the constitution of the country and also by international laws. But also write to Pretoria, to the presidency, to raise this consent. And on the 8th of October, Batlali would be having a massive protest in South Africa, both in Durban and in Cape Town, uh, raising this issue of violence. And I think it's important because here also we are aware of the police violence and police brutality that continue to terrorize particularly black folks here in the United States. And um, I wish also to commit uh, Abashladi in support and in standing with those folks who continue to face police brutality here. I have just one more last thing, which is short, but I just, you talked a lot about how leaders of the movement that you have helped build are being targeted. How are you feeling? Do you feel safe? And is there anything that we can do? Well, part of my visit to the United States has been for protection purposes. I have not been at work for the past three months. My life has been threatened in a number of times through different forms. But there has also been the police that have confirmed a hit on me. And of course, the state is aware of that, but they have done nothing to protect me. I'm walking under the shadow of death not only myself and other comrades who have had to leave their homes in the name of democracy, in the name of human rights. So I am going to be hitting back in the next two days. It is not safe. I'm not feeling safe. I hope something can be done from this side, particularly because the people of South Africa, as well as the South African government, have high respect for folks here in the United States that you can do something in order to highlight and to express your concerns around this. I do not think that we can afford to lose comrades who really wanting a better world, who really are committed to humanize our world. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot that can be done from this side uh, that can really restore our safety and, and our dignity. Thank you for speaking to us today and to me and Thank you for taking the time, despite everything that you have on your plate, to really draw upon how rich this moment is and the movement is that you've built. It's my honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now it's time for the news. Here's the latest at the Center for Constitutional Rights. For over a decade, the Center for Constitutional Rights has been trying to hold accountable the company named CACI, spelled C-A-C-I, one of the private military contractors implicated in the horrific torture of Iraqis at Abu Ghraib prison in the early 2000s. After years of litigation, this case will be going to trial before a judge in Virginia in April of 2019, so stay tuned. We're also newly representing an asylum seeker from El Salvador and her four-year-old child, Jay, who were separated at the border over seven months ago. Now, the mother is being held in a detention center in Texas while her child was sent to a detention center in Chicago, and they're both in dire health. We'll be arguing their case in court in D.C. later this month. And for our listeners in New York, mark your calendars for November 27th. Our executive director, Vince Warren, will be joining actor Kerry Washington and Black Lives Matter co-creator Alicia Garza for a community discussion after a performance of the new Broadway play, American Son. 
The show is described as a gripping tale about who we are as a nation and how we deal with family, relationships, love, loss, and identity. Learn more at ccrjustice.org. So that's a little of what we're up to here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Remember to subscribe to The Activist Files on iTunes, Spotify, and any other app you might use for uh, downloading podcasts. Next up, The Real AF. The Real AF. The Real AF. The Real AF. Yeah, I just need you to say The Real AF. The Real AF. So we're here for another segment of The Real AF, and we're super excited to have Rob Santiago, CCR's Senior Major Gifts Officer. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Aaliyah. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, so you ready to answer some tough questions? I am. Let's go for it. Would you rather hang out with your past self or your future self? I think I definitely want to hang out with my future self. I know my past, <laughs> and there's some things I wish I could change. But I think my future would be the best, and, and I kind of see my future with my son. So I see a little things like that. I think it's pretty cool to kind of see his kind of interactions and his facial expressions, and I'm thinking that's going to be pretty cool down the line to kind of you know guide him in that. So definitely my future self. Would you rather hold a snake or a tarantula? I'd rather hold a snake eating the tarantula. That makes sense. That's a good one. <laughs> Would you rather read a book or the internet? Uh, definitely a book. I'm um, big bookworm. Uh, growing up, I've constantly was reading books. Something about the smell of the pages. So I think it's better for me. It makes my creativity. What do you mean, what do you mean like right now? Reading right now. So I got a bunch. Right now I'm reading a lot of children's books because of, mm-hmm. of, of my son. So a lot of Cat in the Hat is there. Amelia Bedelia is something I'm exposing him to. Curious George. But I've been reading some memoirs, obviously a lot of social justice and civil rights books, things of that nature. So I try to just have an array of different things going mm-hmm. on. What's your favorite children's book? Ian, you can answer that question too. What's the one, The Frog and Toad? That was a dope book. Remember that I don't one? know it. You never know. Do you know that one? You know, I definitely love the Giving Tree. That mm-hmm. always has a you know a good message um, in terms of that. Uh, I grew up reading a lot of Judy Bloom books, The Line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, which I don't know if that's oh, yeah. still considered if that's considered a children's book or. My mom read adult. me those books. Yeah, definitely. And just just going back to reading, I mean, that's how I got exposed um, to it. I'm the youngest of four. My oldest brother would read me books. I remember just him vividly reading to me of Mice and Men. You mentioning that you remember your mom reading, I think probably has some some influence as to you know why you read often. Mm-hmm. And same thing with me. My brother read to me all the time, and that's how I got exposed to it. That's great. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm.